If you have your Bibles with you, I say that every Sunday. I hope that you do. If you have your Bibles with you, will you turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1? We'll look at verses 3 through 11 together. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. Before we read that text, I want to give you kind of the aim of our time together in the Word and pray again for the preaching of God's Word. Here's our aim today. We want to see in God's Word that we have been entrusted to speak the right words with the right motivation to the right people that we've been entrusted to speak the right words with the right motivation to the right people. Let me pray and then we'll look at the text together. Father, we pray you'd be gracious to us today and open our eyes that we may see wonderful things in your word. And Father, we pray that your gospel would come today not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Paul writing to young Timothy says this beginning in verse three. As I urged you upon my departure for Macedonia, Remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to, not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. For some men... Straying from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers and immoral men, homosexuals, kidnappers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Well, may God add his blessing to the reading of his word during World War II, many nations used cryptography to relay important strategic information. This includes both code making and code breaking. The Germans used a device called Enigma, but it was only a matter of time before a Polish mathematician was able to break the code at the beginning of 1940. 
at the onset of the war, giving a decided advantage to the Allies. The United States, however, developed a machine entitled Sagaba that proved to be unbreakable throughout the war and even into the mid-1950s. The number of permutations on the Sagaba were virtually limitless, making it almost impossible to decipher, especially when the only technology available in the 1940s was analog. The enemies had no hope. To make deciphering the code that the United States used even more difficult, they added an element to the code, the Native American Navajo language, which was basically unknown to anyone outside the United States. So when you added those two things together, code being spoken in the Navajo language, the enemy's opportunity to decipher that code, again, was virtually impossible. And this helped the United States plan, communicate, carry out massive operations, including the attack on Iwo Jima. In order to separate, excuse me, to intercept the United States plans, the enemy would have to both know the Navajo language and break the code that it was using. This was a decided advantage for the Allies. Throughout history, especially during war times, secret messages being sent or intercepted have always been a vital piece of war. Often, intentionally, deceptive messages are sent that were allowed to be intercepted to throw off the enemy who was hoping to steal vital information. See, having the right information from the right source at the right time meant everything for battle preparedness. And though today's text is not discussing military conquest or the defense of a nation, we are looking at a text that draws out the importance of speaking the right words with the right motivation to the right people. The church has been entrusted with that great responsibility. As Paul opens his letter to young Timothy, he reminds Timothy of the need to address a few things in the life of the church at Ephesus. Paul wants to see gospel advance at Ephesus. Paul wants to see the gospel continue to be preached, seeing unrighteous men come to faith in Christ. But he also wants to see gospel progress in the hearts and minds of those who already believe deepening their understanding and maturity in the things of the Lord. Today, we want to receive with Timothy the gospel call that Paul puts on the lives, as our lives as members of a local church. Along with Timothy, we have received the call in the church to preach the good news of Jesus Christ. The language that Paul uses in his letter is this, to instruct to give instruction. That's what he's calling Timothy to do. And it's certainly what we've been called to do as a church today. God has called us to instruct others in the truth of the gospel. 
Here are three particulars regarding that instruction. I've already kind of given you the outline and the focus statement, but we must use right words. We're gonna, we're gonna talk about what those words are in just a little bit, but we must use right words, number one. Number two, we must be rightly motivated. And number three, we must speak to the right people. We'll give clar- clarification to all three of those. But let's begin at, with the first point in verse three. Here's point number one. We must urgently instruct with gospel truth. We must urgently instruct with gospel truth. Paul says again to Timothy, as I urged you upon my departure for Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus for what? For this, so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation, rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. See, Paul's is saying to Timothy, I'm urging you to do something very important. There's an urging that Paul gives to Timothy. Stay at Ephesus, not just because we like the place, but because there's an important task to be carried out. And that task is to address these strange doctrines that are being promoted in the church at Ephesus. There's a sense of urgency connected to the task that Paul gives to Timothy to fulfill. But what exactly is that task? Yes, address strange doctrine. I would say it like this. It was Timothy's responsibility as a pastor of that church to address bad theology. To address bad theology so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. By strange, Paul means different or wrong anything that deviates from the truth, anything that takes away from the purity of the gospel. Part of addressing bad theology is to preach the truth itself. How do we address bad theology? We preach right theology. We preach good theology. But there's more to the task than simply preaching truth, though that is primary. You must also confront the bad teaching, so that when we teach and preach what is true, we address what is not true. We address perversions of what is true. But I'd say it, Timothy's responsibility is even more than just preaching truth and addressing what's not true, but it's confronting bad teachers. Confronting bad teaching means that we have to address those who are teaching what is wrong. Again, the way to confront bad theology is to preach truth, but it also requires to personally address the source or sources of bad theology. To eliminate the threat of bad theology taking root in the life of the church, the church must instruct her members to do the second half of what verse three says, or excuse me, what verse four says. Not only should we address bad theology, but we should tell our people not to pay attention to bad theology, to myths and endless genealogies. If we get fixated on something other than the gospel, even if it seems good, we'll lose focus on what's primary, Jesus Christ and him crucified. May I give us a word of encouragement at this point? 
without getting too far into the weeds. I want to urge you not to listen, at least not with frequency or regularity, to any voice that is not explicitly biblical. See, there's a lot of voices out there that are opposing bad things. And there's nothing wrong with listening to those voices. But if they're not attacking what's wrong from a biblical perspective, then you're in danger of latching on to another worldly view. And there are a lot of voices out there who are opposing bad worldviews. And those voices make great arguments. But I would warn against listening to those voices frequently because they're not applying the gospel in their arguments. These voices are combating evil, yes, but they may be setting us up for a much more sly version of worldliness. To address what is wrong is good, but if you don't leave the listener with hope, something more than an opposing view, then we're still leaving them in danger. The truth is only the gospel can correct the waywardness of the world by changing the hearts of men. I do know this, in all my years of arguing and debating and having conversations that really branch all the way back into college, I had a lot of roommates who were involved in politics, so I heard all kinds of arguments and debates. Here's what I know. In all those arguments and debates, I can think of very few people whose minds were changed. When we argue, when we debate about meaningless things, very few people change their minds. But when we preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, then we're relying entirely on the sovereign power of God to change the heart of men. Paul goes on to mention these myths and endless genealogies as issues in Ephesus. Myths being manufactured stories, falsehoods, fiction. They just made stuff up. It still happens. And these endless genealogies were just an attempt to gain some kind of, uh, excuse me, of status or power based on family lineage. But how far back do you go? That's why he says endless genealogies because eventually the people who are trying to gain their status are gonna end up in the same place that they're trying to have status over. If we keep tracing our genealogies back, they're gonna meet somewhere. Paul says this is all mere speculation, or to rephrase it, this is all meaningless distractions to what's most important. Paul's urging here is to address bad theology, to set the meaningless distractions aside and to teach right biblical doctrine. Preach the gospel. It's what Paul is urging Timothy to do. The most direct path to combat strange doctrines, myths, meaningless distractions, mere speculations, is to preach the truth of the gospel. As a matter of fact, those things not only lead people astray, but they hinder the advance of the gospel. Listen to what he says in verse four. Rather than furthering the administration, which is by faith, See, Paul's intent is to set all the nonsense aside so that there can be a furthering of the gospel of Jesus Christ. When he says furthering the administration, he means advancing God's plan. 
what's God's plan? What's the furthering administration that Paul is talking about here? It's the spread of the gospel. God is massively creative. All we have to do is look around us, go visit some place of renowned nature and be amazed at God's creation. Look at the intricate detail of the human body and life. God is creative. And in all his creativeness, he came up with a simple plan for the furthering of administration. Preach the good news of Jesus Christ. Christ's death and resurrection should be proclaimed. That's the plan. That's it. Nothing else. God's plan operates on the basis of faith so that when that gospel is preached, the way that God's kingdom expands is faith. Romans 1, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. The kingdom of God advances through preaching and receiving the truth by faith. Faith in the gospel is the power of God to save. When we preach, we preach believing that God can save. When we communicate the truth of Christ's death and resurrection, we do so knowing that God uses that message that simple truth to change men's hearts. See, when we combat one worldly argument with another, we only expose one philosophy as lacking. But when we preach the gospel, we accomplish two things at once. We expose what is false, but we also hold out not just what is true, but what is true and gives hope. What is true and saves what is true and delivers. There's another important ingredient that Paul mentions that we should not miss in the text. Faith, faith. We should not only preach the good news of Jesus Christ, but we should pray that God would be gracious and grant faith. It's on the basis of faith that one believes. Our calling, is an urgent faith-filled responsibility to instruct others in the truth, in gospel truth. And God has a goal in mind to that gospel truth instruction. Look with me in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. The words are easy to understand here, but the goal of our instruction is love. The goal of our instruction is love. The second thing we want to see this, this afternoon is this. We must lovingly instruct with pure hearts. So we don't just want to instruct with truth, but we want to instruct the truth with pure hearts, with love or in love. Paul says there's a goal behind using the right words. There's a goal behind preaching the gospel. There's a goal behind commending Jesus Christ to other people. The goal is love. But what does that mean? It sounds good. 
the goal is love. We can all get behind that, that idea, that thought, but what does it mean? Paul is addressing the heart of the preacher. And in particular, in Ephesus, the hearts of preachers whose motives were not right. It seems clear from Paul's exhortation to Timothy that the motives of some of those who are propagating the gospel in Ephesus was from the wrong motive. It was from selfish gain. Paul mentioned something similar to this in his letter to the church in Philippi. To the Philippians, Paul writes, some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife. So it's possible to preach the truth of Christ, but from a wrong motive. So our right words aren't enough, though they're certainly necessary. We want to begin there, but there has to be a right motive. He goes on to say to the church in Philippi, but some also, talking about preaching, from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I've been appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. So Paul's imprisoned at this point when he writes to the church in Philippi. And there's people out there preaching the truth of the gospel, but they're doing it from wrong motives and they're doing it because they think it'll cause Paul distress while he's in prison. So what does Paul say? I love this. Verse 18 of Philippians chapter one. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in this, I rejoice. So should we be happy that the truth is being preached? Yes, but does it matter the motive in that preaching? Yes, motive matters. It matters very much and it's one of the things that Paul's addressing. Yes, not just right instruction, but with the right motivation. So what Paul's doing here is addressing to Timothy the wayward hearts of gospel preachers. That's a dangerous thing to consider. People preaching the truth from the wrong motive. You've heard the accurate statement before, actions speak louder than words. I agree with that common line. I'm not trying to contest that statement, but I, I want to add to it. According to our text, the words we use are vital. They're of vital importance. So the way I think today's text would add to that statement is this. Actions speak louder than words. Yes. But words speak louder when the actions of the one speaking those words are driven by gospel love. Actions speak louder when our words are driven by gospel love. When our actions are motivated by the gospel, then our gospel words are loud and clear to those around us. That means that our gospel preaching must be informed by the gospel we preach. Let me say that again. The gospel that we're preaching must be informed by the gospel we preach. So you can't just tell people about the truth if it hasn't taken root in your heart. You're going to go astray. Your motives are going to be off. So it's not that we simply get the words right, but that our motivation and our heart must be right as well. The gospel extends the love of God to undeserving sinners. That's what it is. We're telling sinners there's hope. There's somebody who loves you. God demonstrates his own love. It's a demonstration. It's visible action. God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, what? The visible action. Christ died for us. It's a fact. 
It's a reality. It's something that can be seen. It's tangible. The gospel is God loves us despite our wickedness. The gospel is patient and kind. The gospel is gracious and merciful. The gospel is we gain what we have not earned. The gospel is truth in action. God demonstrates, God actively shows us that he loves us. And when we preach the gospel, we ought to do the same. Our preaching of the truth is not enough. It must be accompanied with love that the gospel demonstrates to us. You cannot effectively preach the gospel if you have not first been moved to faith in the gospel. If you're to reach the goal of instructing others, you must do so in love. He even gives us some prongs to grab hold of what he means by love. So how are we to preach the gospel and love to the world around us, even to our fellow saints or ourselves? We'll talk about that in a minute. He says, from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from a sincere faith. A life that has been affected by the truth of what Christ has done for us manifests itself in love. Listen to me, if the gospel has genuinely taken root in your life, you will love God's people. Those two things go hand in hand. If you have a hard time loving God's people, you need to go back in God's word and look at what his gospel really is. In today's text, Paul provides some tangible evidence of the motives of the preacher. Rather than envy or strife or selfishness, Paul urges Timothy to preach from a pure heart, from a good or clear conscience and a sincere faith. These are the type of people that you want surrounding you in your life. These are the kind of people that you want caring for you. Paul belabors his point of love being the goal by contrasting love with a snapshot of wrong motives in the next two verses. Look with me in verses six and seven. For some men, straying from these things, what things? A pure heart, good conscience, sincere faith. They're straying from these things, have turned aside to fruitless discussion. You don't know how to get caught up in the wrong kind of conversations, getting fixated on the wrong kind of theology? Remove a pure heart, good conscience, sincere faith from the equation. Verse seven, wanting to be teachers of the law, listen to this, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. The people who are most likely to form bad theology, even in the framework of a church, are the ones who are currently emphasizing the wrong things. If you're consumed with debating something in the Bible that is not the gospel, then you're on the path to bad theology. The gospel doesn't produce divisive debates. It produces loving hearts. The gospel doesn't produce a sense of rightness, but produces a good conscience. The gospel doesn't produce mental superiority. It produces sincere faith. So let me ask, do you love the saints of this church? Do your actions communicate that you love the people of this church? Or let me ask it like this. Would the people of this church say about you, they love me. They love me. 
No matter how passionate one might be about what they're teaching, the test of good teaching is truth and love. Is it true? Is what they say matched by visible expressions of love? So you can talk to me till you're blue in the face about some kind of pet doctrine. But if I don't feel loved by you, I'm not chiming in and vice versa. I can talk to you all day long. I can preach a thousand sermons on Sundays, but if you don't think I love you, you're not hearing much of what I have to say. No matter how passionate one might be about what they're teaching, no matter how confident they may be in their assertion, it's just misguided passions if it's not about the gospel. A zeal for anything other than the gospel of Jesus Christ can quickly undermine the gospel itself. So we don't just want to address bad theology, but we want to address the waywardness of our hearts. We advance the gospel by loving others with the heart of the gospel, God's heart. To demonstrate the gospel love of God to others is the goal of our calling to instruct people in the truth. We preach the truth because we want them to see and know the love of God that is in us. But who are the people that we ought to be speaking this instruction to? Well, that's our third point today. We must soundly instruct with humble self-awareness. So we must urgently instruct with the gospel truth. We must lovingly instruct with pure hearts. And we must soundly instruct with humble self-awareness. Look with me in verse eight. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that Law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers and immoral men, homosexuals, kidnappers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. See, according to the text, the target of our gospel instruction, the target of the love of God in our instruction is the unrighteous, the sinner, the helpless. The primary recipient, I wholeheartedly believe the person benefiting most from this letter that Paul sends to Timothy is not Timothy or even the church at Ephesus. I believe the person who benefited most from pinning this letter was Paul himself. Because Paul's talking about himself here. He's preaching the truth of the gospel to himself. Yes, Timothy's name is on the letter. Yes, Timothy was intended to hear what Paul was saying, but Paul admits just a few verses later, Jordan will cover the text next week, that he is the foremost of all sinners. So if the unrighteous are the aim of this letter or this message or this gospel teaching that Paul is giving, that he's saying, as the foremost of all sinners, I needed to hear this more than anybody. What I write right now is for me. Paul says, the law is good. The, gall, the law is good for us because it exposes our sinfulness. See, the law has never proven anyone to be worthy. The law has never justified a single person. No man has ever kept the law perfectly. 
It is impossible to use the law to prove your righteousness, though it certainly has been tried. The rich young ruler in Luke 18 gives us an example of one who embraces the law, but misunderstood the the purpose of the law. Therefore, he misuses it. He saw the law from a self-righteous perspective. And as we saw earlier in today's sermon, sometimes the danger is in teaching or receiving bad theology. But here, Paul says the danger is misusing good theology. There's nothing wrong with the law. It's good unless it's misused. So sometimes even good theology, when it's misused, can cause harm. The law is good to expose our sin, but that's only half the message. The other half is good news. The other half is the gospel. The other half is the perfect life of Christ, his obedient death, his glorious resurrection. The other half is the gospel is good to reveal the hope of forgiveness. Apart from the gospel, the law destroys the hope of men or it puffs them up in self-righteousness. The most miserable people on the planet, I'm convinced of this, are unregenerate church members who find all their hope in the moral standing of the law. People who live under the constant spotlight of personal righteousness derived from their perceived obedience to the law, living the most helpless life or hopeless life known to man. All the other world religions that exist set up some kind of standard like this for its people. But I want to warn you that even in the framework of the church, though this should not be, we're prone to self-righteousness. We're prone to think that we are righteous even in light of the law that we know exposes us. And as we labor to live in our own righteousness, one of two things happens. We either grow weary of the impossible task of perfection, we finally give up and either stray from the faith or submit to God, or we go to extreme lengths to prove our righteousness, not just to others, but to ourselves. And it's a miserable life. The problem is, The misuse of the law is not limited to these false religions, but it happens within the framework of the church. There are too many who claim to be Christians who are vulnerable to such misuse. Anyone who does not see themselves as unrighteous is in danger of misusing the law. Last week, I listened to a sermon where the pastor introduced himself to the congregation as John Michael the Redneck. He was a pastor from Mississippi. And the reason he introduced himself was to say, there's an old man that grew up in Mississippi named John Michael. And his life was plagued with all kinds of inappropriate behavior, thinking. And he was saying to this congregation that John Michael the redneck needed to be crucified. He had to kill that man day after day after day because he kept trying to run his life. As I listened to this sermon, I wondered to myself, how would I describe 
the old man of Bron Smith? What is the thing that keeps raising its ugly head in my life, trying to gain control? What is it that I need to crucify? To my shame, I would have to say that it's Brian the self-righteous. That's the man that needs to be crucified again and again and again. I have the wicked ability to justify my actions, to simply make a way for the the gratification of my flesh, to manipulate others so that I get my way. I am by nature self-righteous to the core. And it's that old man that has to be slayed again and again. And though I'd never say the words, my mind and actions often preach that I do not need the gospel of Jesus Christ in my life. That I find myself in light of the law righteous and it's absurd. It's absurd. The law is necessary to expose our sin for people like me, like you, like us, for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers and immoral men, homosexuals, kidnappers, liars, perjurers, and I love this last line, and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. You don't think you belong on that list anywhere? Couldn't identify with anything that that Paul listed right there? Well, grab hold of the last one, it got you. Sound, anything that's contrary to sound teaching. That was the reality of the prideful, rich, young ruler who hadn't given consideration to the the fact that he hadn't kept the law perfectly. And in his interaction with Jesus, Jesus lists out all these horizontal things that the man had kept, but he mentioned none of the vertical commandments that we find in the Ten Commandments because what the rich young ruler lacked was a heart that treasured Jesus above all else. We find the same true to be here. But there is hope. The law and the gospel are in perfect harmony with one another. When we apply the law rightly, we are condemned. We read Romans 3 earlier, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But this condemning law makes the gospel so much sweeter. The gospel is only sweet to those whose sin has been made plain before them. I love it in Psalm 51. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Against you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. David knew his sin and it made the love of Christ so much sweeter to him. Christ is more lovely to the vile sinner. We see this theme played out through all the gospels. If you're under the assumption that your sin is not grievous, then your desire for God's salvation will be minimal, if not non-existent. The good news of Jesus' death and resurrection is only good news to those who know they are perishing and are destined for an eternal hell of agony beyond our most demented imagination. In order to soundly instruct others in the truth, we must first apply the truth of the law to ourselves, which is what Paul's doing here. The goodness of the gospel is embraced when we first embrace the condemnation of the law. So we ought to speak right words, the true gospel, yes, with the right motivation, the love of God, to the right people, 
ourselves first, then others. What is the basis for Paul spilling these urgent instructions to Timothy? Well, we know about the circumstances that existed in Ephesus. We, we pick up on that in this first chapter of First Timothy. Paul's knowledge of Timothy and the church there at Ephesus. But we find the real basis for Paul's writing in verse 11. He says, according, right? I write all this according to, and this is what he says, the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I've been entrusted. Paul writes according to the glorious gospel. Paul was writing with the glory and splendor of the gospel in mind. What makes the gospel glorious? The gospel is glorious to Paul because he knew the depths from which he had come. A persecutor of the church. Most likely guilty of murder. Who knows what father and mothers he murdered? Who knows of the rap sheet that he lists in this text? that he had tasted the sin of himself. The gospel is glorious because God's only son chose to humble himself. The gospel is glorious because he condescended out of heaven and came to earth to, I say this all the time, to walk among men whom he created, to become a servant to those men and to be crucified unjustly by those men. The spotless lamb of God would be sacrificed by the hands of sinful men, but also by the merciful will of the father. That's why the gospel is glorious. The blood of Jesus would be spilled, pay the price for our sins. That's why the gospel is glorious. Though we were God haters and sinful to the core, God would redeem us through the death of his son, Jesus. That's why the gospel is glorious and praise God. We know the story doesn't end with the death of Christ. Christ not only absorbed the entirety of our sin in his death, but he also imparted to us life, abundant, eternal life in his resurrection from the grave. By his own power, Christ victoriously stepped out of the chains of death. He conquered sin and death. That's why the gospel is glorious, because he is a risen savior. That's why the gospel is glorious. In God's great grace, this act of mercy was carried out on our behalf. Redemption. That's why the gospel is glorious. It is indeed a glorious gospel that would remove condemning sin and give us perfect righteousness. It is indeed a glorious gospel that would transfer us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. That's a glorious gospel. We had nothing and were irreversibly headed to hell. But God did for us what was impossible to accomplish. He saved us by his own blood. You can reject that gospel if you choose, but your rejection does not lessen the glory and power of our great God, nor his gospel news to others. Believe upon him today. But I want you to see the last phrase of that sentence. Before we wrap up today, according to the glorious gospel 
of the blessed God. I'm not sure what the original title of the sermon is, but I would say the goal of the glorious gospel of God. I love what Donald Guthrie says about this phrase of the blessed God. He says it describes God not as the object of blessing, but as experiencing within himself the perfection of bliss, contentment, happiness, joy, these emotions that we can wrap our minds around. God exists in perfect happiness. It may seem like a strange idea that God is happy and he is happy with and in himself, but it is certainly the idea that is being conveyed in the text. God is the most blessed being in the universe. He is completely and perfectly happy in himself. And that's what makes the gospel glorious, that that God would invite us in to that blissful happiness is beyond my comprehension. And Paul says this, we have been entrusted. We have been entrusted with this gospel to speak the right words with the right motivation to the right people. Grace Church, know the true gospel. Teach, preach, share the true gospel. Love others from and with that gospel, that gospel love, and apply the law and the gospel to yourself. And last but not least, worship the blessed God of the gospel. Let's pray together. It almost seems unreal. that you, infinite, majestic, holy, blessed God, would provide good news for sinful, rebellious, self-righteous people like us. And yet, in Christ, his death and resurrection, that's exactly what you've done. So Father, help us, help us to speak those true gospel words to those around us. Help us to do so in love. And Father, we pray that we would meditate, believe upon, revel in, rest in, and worship you because of that great gospel. Help us today, we pray. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.